This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Thomas Cook's collapse into liquidation was perhaps one of the most shocking stories of 2019 and with a very visible impact. Little did we know then what was in store for the travel industry and other businesses during 2020. So far during the pandemic, we've mostly seen companies proposing company voluntary arrangements or appointing administrators, but liquidation is still a potential insolvency route. And so for this episode of Property Patter, I'm joined by Emma Priest of our real estate disputes team and Heidi Wagstaff of our corporate restructuring and insolvency team to look at how it works. So Heidi, let's start if we may by thinking about what is a liquidation? What's its purpose? The process of a liquidation is effectively where a company is brought to an end and insolvency practitioners are appointed and they take over conduct of the company and effectively the directors cease to have any further authority. Um, there are various different types of liquidation. So you can have a solvent or an insolvent liquidation, or you can have a compulsory or voluntary liquidation. So a solvent liquidation is known as a member's voluntary liquidation. And that's where the company is solvent and the directors just want to do a solvent winding up, pay all the taxes due, and anything that's left over is then paid to the shareholders of the company. On the other hand, you can have insolvent liquidations where the company effectively is unable to pay its debts as they fall due. You can have a voluntary, creditor's voluntary liquidation as it's known, which is where the company is wound up uh, by a meeting of the directors who resolve to place the company into creditors' voluntary liquidation and appoint an insolvency practitioner. Or you can have compulsory liquidation, which is where um, a creditor will present a winding up petition at the court in order to request that payment be made for some sums which are due to them. And if payment isn't made and the court is satisfied that the company is insolvent, then a winding up order will be made and the company will be placed into liquidation. That's where it basically a, a creditor is, is showing that the, the company is unable to, to settle its debts as they told you. Is that right? Am I remembering that test right? Yeah, that's it. So unable to pay, pay its debts as they fall due. So, so normally the winding up petition is issued by the creditor and the company will then have an opportunity if it, if it wishes or if it has evidence to try and dispute uh, the debt. You know, for example, they may claim that that payment is not due or that the payment that the creditor is requesting is too much. But if they're unable to defend their position, satisfy the court that they um, that they have a, a case to answer, then the court will make a winding up order and say that the company be wound up. And the official receiver in the first instant is appointed as the liquidator. And if, um, if, if appropriate, the, the official receiver will then call a meeting of the creditors where the creditors may vote to appoint a specific insolvency practitioner or practitioners as the liquidators of the company. Okay, and so once the liquidator is actually appointed, what what does he or she then actually do, as it were? What's the day-to-day job? So, so their day-to-day job is to effectively take conduct of the company uh, and go in and realise assets for the benefit of creditors and then distribute those assets uh, by way of a payment to the creditors, it's, it's called a dividend. They will get uh, a pence in the pound based on the debt that they have in the company. Um, 
liquidators have certain statutory investigatory duties um, and powers, and they can require information from certain individuals, for example, the directors, or they can require copies of professional advisors' files, uh, which will assist them in investigating the company's affairs. And if they're satisfied that there's there's something um, in it and they believe that there's a claim, then they they can bring various claims against different respondents to try and recover money or assets which have um, perhaps disappeared out of the company. And if they're successful, then that will hopefully mean that there's money which can then just be distributed to the creditors. And of course, uh, Emma and I tend to come across these situations where uh, a landlord has a tenant go into liquidation. So Emma, do you want to say a bit about what the sort of issues are that landlords need to think about um, when that happens to them? Yes, so the two main issues that arise for landlords um, often relate to the recovery of rent arrears um, and then also the termination of the lease and regaining possession of the property and that process generally. So the liquidation will usually follow a period of non-payment of sums under the lease, so it's unlikely to come as a complete shock that this has happened to the landlord, um, but it is likely again that there will be arrears that the landlord will want to recover. The correct course of action here is for the landlord to complete what's known as a proof of debt form and to then file this with the liquidator together with any documentation supporting the claim which in this context will include a lease and any outstanding invoices as well. As we know um, forfeiture at the moment is not available um, at least insofar as it relates to sums payable under the lease because of legislation that's been brought in as a result of the pandemic. Um, however, disclaimer is a unique aspect of liquidation um, and it relates to the liquidator's power to disclaim onerous property, which includes leases. So the liquidator may decide to do this of their own accord or alternatively a creditor landlord could file a notice with the liquidator asking them to decide whether or not it will disclaim the lease and then the liquidator has to respond to that notice within 28 days. Generally, we prefer disclaimer anyway from a, a legal point of view to forfeiture. Um, because you have a formal notice uh, from the liquidator and this can then be used as evidence of the termination of the lease which is quite helpful when you go on to close the leasehold title at the land registry. Yes that's very true isn't it it's much more useful than having to wait the six months that the land registry will usually require if you've if you forfeited the lease um, and it's quite useful for landlords obviously to be able to serve that notice and get the liquidator to to make a decision about whether it it wants the property or not. What is the process if a landlord submits a claim uh, in liquidation? Heidi, how likely is it that they'll receive any payment? And, and if they do, how long will that take? So the process um, which, which Emma's described earlier, which is you file a proof of debt form as the creditor. And when the liquidator is in a position to pay a dividend to creditors, they will do what's called adjudicate on the proof of debt. So they can either admit the proof of debt in full, they can admit the proof of debt in part or not at all. Um, and if there is a creditor that uh, takes issue or disagrees with the decision of the liquidator, they can go through an appeal process. Um, in terms of how likely is it that they will receive a payment, it, it often depends on the company and whether there are any assets for which the liquidators can immediately realise, such as properties which might be owned by the company um, or other assets. But very often there is limited uh, amount of immediately realisable assets. And, and the way in which the liquidators could make a realisation is 
investigating the affairs of the companies and bringing claims against certain respondents, for example, against the directors for claims under the Insolvency Act. So this will involve often um, litigation. And sadly, for landlords, it can take a very long time. We're talking years rather than months. Um, and sometimes it's unsuccessful or sometimes it can still result in a very small credit, um, a very small dividend being paid to the creditors. Um, some liquidators, a lot of the ones that we work with, will take on the investigations on risk. So they won't be paid as they go along and they might take a small uplift for that fact. So there can be sometimes little downside to the creditors, you know, for, for a landlord, for example, other than just waiting and seeing what happens as a result of the investigations and any potential litigation that, that takes place. But it is a long process. And um, I think for the most part, it can be difficult to secure any meaningful dividend, potentially, it, you know, especially if the value of the creditors is significant. Yeah, that's certainly my experience. I mean, I don't want to give away too much about my age, but in 20 something years of um, <laughs> dealing with uh, tenant insolvency, I think I could count on the fingers of one hand when a, a landlord has seen anything come out of a, a liquidation, unfortunately. Yeah. I didn't want to be all doom and gloom because um, <laughs> that's the reputation <laughs> insolvency lawyers tend to have. But yeah, it's it's. It's unusual, unfortunately, for there to be any kind of meaningful dividend at the end. It's not to say it doesn't happen. It certainly does happen, but it, it can take a very, very long time. Yes, I have seen it, but as you say, it's rare. Now, one of the drawbacks of doing a podcast um, uh, is that our listeners can't see what I've got in my hot little hands, which is a, 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 a table that um, uh, our insolvency team very kindly drew up uh, with us uh, to show all the different remedies that are available to landlords in all the different events of tenant insolvency but what we will do is we will put a link to that when we post this podcast so that people can can access that you covered it very nicely Heidi you know we've got all these different types of liquidation and their impact on landlord remedies therefore is quite complex to put it mildly um so I'm not going to dream of listing them out here today but um Emma, let's assume that um, our listeners have had a quick check against our table uh, on the website, worked out what restrictions are and what they're not, and what have you. Um, what sort of options are available to them if there are arrears that they'd like to, to recover? They're not feeling very hopeful about the outcome uh, via a dividend. Um, there's various restrictions possibly in place. What are they left with? Yes, yeah, so very sensible to, to have a think about that early on. Um, so... The, there are options, but unfortunately, the, the, they're not going to be available to everybody. So the availability of the options I'm going to talk through will depend on the structure of the lease and the security obtained by the landlord. So using a rent deposit is one option. If that was taken out, um, the landlord will need to check the deed carefully and ensure they comply with any notice requirements in order to make a withdrawal. Another option is any guarantors. Usually a guarantor will have equal liability to that of the tenant, although do check that carefully and uh, particularly if there are any limitations on the guarantee. Um, alternatively, the landlord may be able to pursue other third parties, including former tenants and or possibly former guarantors. So the availability of this route will depend on whether there was an assignment of the lease uh, to the current tenant and if an authorised guarantee agreement was entered into by that former tenant and possibly also former guarantor on the assignment. 
if this route is available, then the landlord should serve what's known as a Section 17 notice on the former tenants and guarantors within six months of the uh, arrears falling due. So it does work for rent, but it won't work for all arrears. Um, so yes, a brief summary there. Yeah, that's really helpful. And as you say, it's always worth checking about the guarantors because, I mean, obviously a lot of the time they are connected with the failing company in a way that means that they are also either likely to fail to or have already failed, but not always. Um, and guarantors, in my experience, can sometimes be, uh, you know, a positive route of recovery. Uh, and we talked about disclaimer earlier. You know, there's often a provision, isn't there, in the lease that says in the event of a disclaimer, you can require the guarantor to take on, um, you know, a new lease of the premises. Um, and whether or not that's really what the landlord wants, um, it, you know, it's it, it's a potentially useful way of at least securing some cash flow um, or a negotiating position. So, yeah, good to, good to keep these various options in mind. Um, thank you both. That's been a very helpful reminder of the various principles and issues which arise in a tenant liquidation situation. Uh, it's worth, I think, a reminder to our listeners that our surveyor's refresher area has guidance for landlords who find themselves with an insolvent tenant. So please just email us and we can give you access to that area. We also have a link to the recording of our recent, more detailed tenant insolvency webinar there for anyone who missed it. Thanks very much for joining us today. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.